Hello and a happy new year to you. Welcome to the third episode of the Clockwork Chronicles, an insider's guide to Clockwork Watch, an interactive and participatory story that I created. Uh, my name's Yomi Ayeni. Now, Clockwork is a story told through comic books, immersive theatre, role play, and various other mediums which we'll get to talk about. This podcast is to explain the history of Clockwork Watch, offer an insight into how it came about, chat with some of the contributors, and encourage anyone interested in playing part of the story to jump in and help co-create their own narratives within the universe. Now, if you heard the first two episodes, you'd have got a bit of an understanding of how how this craziness more or less came about. But not long after I had written a film treatment for Clockwork Watch, it actually started as a film script, and uh, I was actually having a huge problem getting any traction from anyone, a friend suggested I consider pivoting to a graphic novel. And that is how I was introduced to my next guest, Corey Brotherson, um, author, writer, and for the purposes of this podcast, editor of this project. Now, welcome, Corey. Thank you for having me on. Yay. Now, for everyone seems to have a different understanding of what Clockwork Watch is. In your own words, what is Clockwork Watch? (laughs) Yeah, this is always an interesting question because when I get asked this myself, uh, my answer always changes ever so slightly. Um, But my my general, I guess, encapsulation of, of Clockwork Watch is it's a participatory transmedia epic steampunk adventure it's it's a story which transcends mediums it's it's something which has managed to kind of like tendril its way into so many different aspects and so many different avenues that it's a story that is that belongs to itself rather than any specific medium and as a result it, it has become this this wonderful amorphous thing where it's incredibly difficult to to nail down to one specific thing other than the fact that it is a story a story that everybody and anybody can be part of which in itself is a a wonderful thing in itself really yes it is uh, quite a convoluted sort of interaction of various bits and bobs that all put together make the whole but i guess independently actually stand on their own on its own feet you know, and in because sometimes people get a bit concerned to say, "Well, do I need to know this and do I need to know that?" And say, "No, you don't. You can actually read the graphic novels and be totally and utterly, you know, happy with what the experience is, or you could come to the live events and have a great experience there. Or on the other side, you may hear about it, read about some of the parts online, and decide to create your own world, your own narrative. Mm-hmm. So it, it it covers a lot of that. Now, how did you first hear about this? Because how we met. Well, we more or less met through this project, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So that was all, that's always an interesting, um, an interesting tale into itself because I, I remember. Um, so our mutual friend Matt Gibbs, yep. uh, who is a, a writer himself as well, uh, we were both working at PlayStation at the time, and he, I was, um, I already had like several years writing comic books, so. The experience was already there, and I already started my own series, Magic and Mist, which I, I do with Sergio Calvert. And basically, I remember him coming up to me and saying, I've got a friend of mine called, uh, called Yami, and he's, he's doing a project. He's doing a, he wants to kind of get a graphic novel comic book writer on board for it. Um, and I was helping Matt kind of like um, learn some of the ropes and uh, for things where it comes down to comic book, the medium of comic book writing. Um, and he said, like, you know, would you be interested in, in meeting you? 
And I was like, yeah, you know, this, this sounds like a, a cool thing in itself. So that was when it was just kind of like, I think we had a phone conversation at first and you were kind of like, just kind of gently introducing me to the general world of Clockwork Watch and, and the ideas that you had around that, um, which I thought was sounding really cool because at that point I'd had a few comic books under my belt. And even though I was re- working full-time for PlayStation, I was still looking to really expand and diversify my comic book work because a lot of my work was either in horror or um, or fantasy, uh, with a little bit of slice of life and, and kind of other genres as well. But steampunk was was practically entirely new to me at that particular moment in time. So so yeah, I think that was the very first time where I got to speak to you, um, and I don't think anything quite prepared me for what you actually introduced me to. <laughs> because I remember you saying to me, it was just like, you, you, when you sold me on Clockwork Watch, you said it was a combination of, um, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of Alice in Wonderland, a little bit of Sherlock Holmes, a little bit of kind of like um, the question of, of what is, what makes us human that we take from, from things like Blade Runner. Um, and I thought, okay, this is, these are all my favorite things. Right. So this, this, you've already got me, you've already got me. But when we, when you said like, I'm going to let me take you out and introduce you to a few people and, and kind of like take you around various parts of London, which I, I was still relatively fresh to. Um, and, and to this day, I remember coming, like coming back at home and telling my then girlfriend, now wife, Monica about this. And like, I think I had this like, wide eyed look on my face. And she was like, well, what, what happened? And I was just like, wow. It's just like, it's, it, the Alice in Wonderland analogy was, was perfect in that respect because it was like me tumbling down um, into this new world of, of things, which I didn't know existed. Um, and this whole kind of element of, of London and steampunk and, and genre fiction which was totally new to me, um, which was just in itself was an incredible experience, but it was also something which I think helped broaden my perspective for what was going to be my full introduction to to what you wanted to do with Clockwork Watch in itself. Yeah, it, I, I, can, I can remember that day we, we hit a few parties. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh yes, yeah. It was a, it was a, such a fantastic time. I had such an amazing time there. It was it was I had this big grin on my face and just this kind of like what what is what is all of this? What is going on? What I don't even know where I am. The way the way I actually kind of thought about it when I when I was putting some parts of it together, even though I had it in my mind, I had in my mind the whole idea of it is meant to be film um, at the time. Mm-hmm. But I kind of thought, you know. It's a little bit like um, the world or a morning where you have all these broadsheets and tabloids and newspapers all talking about the same story, but every single front page had a different take. And it's only when you read the whole lot do you actually get an idea as to what each person was saying, what political line each one had, and, and what the response of the actual dedicated or focused um, audience or readers were going to take and I kind of felt I wanted that I wanted the chaos element to it <laughs> where everything's true based on and untrue based on you know your individual perspective and what you bring to the table and and that was the chaotic sort of creative I guess creative chaotic sort of environment that I I hoped it would create and I guess Till today, we, we probably sucked at that. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was definitely reflective of that, I think. And I think one of the great things about that is um, it 
it envisions and, and creates this level of freshness around around the um, the story in itself. Mm. And and that's one thing that I think we've both encountered over the years. You know, we've been working together. I mean, uh, just just to, to quick, people about it to jump to jump in here. It's about eleven years now. My God, eleven really? or twelve years. 11 yeah, eleven, twelve. I was going to say yeah because. Because I know we've been, I know COVID has compressed time into a certain degree. And I was thinking to myself, I was, I was trying to think to myself, when did we first get to chat? Because the, the book was launched in 2012, yes. I think it was. Yes. Um, and obviously we'd been working together before that. So it'd be about we'd reached 10, the point 11, like, 2010, 2011. Because it took a yeah, while for that it. Makes to, sense. I mean, for Christ's sake. I mean, I'd never written anything before, like that before. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> your, your magic touch. I mean, while I, while, I, while I know you're a supreme being, I don't quite think you, you turned the key and within six months I'd produced stuff. Because you did a whole load of work on that too. Uh, well, I mean, that was, uh, for me, it was a, a, a kind of like a request that, that kind of, felt like something that was I'd, I'd kind of built up to. I didn't know it existed, but kind of built up to. You know, I'd spent a lot of time writing uh, fiction uh, up to that point. And for me, I think this was one of the, the bigger kind of things that I, that I was kind of, I was asked to do, that I'd been hired to do at that time. Because I know when you introduced Clockwork Watch to me, it was going to be this, you had this big kind of sprawling, kind of concept and you wanted it to expand outwards and we were talking about like live events and everything it wasn't just going to be just graphic novels and I was going to be you know putting together and writing the, the first couple and what was at the time the first couple graphic novels based off your original screenplays um I thought to myself this is a big deal um I've never I've never adapted something of this scale before um but I was really looking forward to getting my my teeth into it um and then when I sat down and kind of went through it I think I went through the arrival quite tentatively because I, I thought to myself, you know, I want to be reverent to what you had in the script before, but obviously I want to make it work towards the medium at the same time. So it was all about really taking bits and pieces, which I thought could work towards the medium in a way which would uh, accentuate and enhance, enhance the story, uh, but also try to stick with the entire core of, of what you wanted to do. So I ended up, I think, keeping a lot of stuff. And I remember one of the first questions I asked of you was like, are you okay with me flash forwarding to an event that happens later on in the story and using it as a very, as an opening, as an opening section for it? And you were like, yeah, just, just do whatever you feel works. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that, that's a bit scary. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me see how I, how I go with this and, and hopefully I don't ruin the whole thing. Um, so I was really trying to take baby steps through the through that whole process because as, as, as um, relatively experienced as I was in working comic books, um, I didn't want to make a hash of what you wrote for your screenplay, which I thought was was fantastic in its own right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was definitely one of those moments where I was like, okay, I'm I'm loving this, I'm really enjoying the process of it, but um, but oh god, I hope I don't mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, part 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 of the reason for this podcast in itself is to give people an insight into into how the whole thing came about. Um, and what you did at that, within that, that, what you've just mentioned in itself was not just hold my hands and guide me through how I, 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 could, I needed to change my writing style in terms of you know, um, the composition 
um, of mm. of writing for film and how to transfer that or translate that into writing for a graphic novel. Because I can remember you telling me that you can only have one action a panel. Because I used to write, mm-hmm. I used to write all this stuff yeah. like, the, like you know, walked one panel was walked into the room, <laughs> sat down, and, and and you know, and reached, walked into the room, sat down, and reached for the newspaper. I was like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. I was like, what do you mean you can't do that? You know, and, then, and it was a way of breaking breaking movement um, mm. um, down into subject subsections and letting the mind subconsciously bridge each gap and segue mm. all these pieces together which i hadn't thought about because everything i did at the, up till that point had to do with moving imagery yes you yeah know? yeah and, and i think it, it oh, sorry, go on, go. no go go please and, no i was going to say i think it kind of speaks to the the magic of the medium of comic books because when you're reading comic book, the comic book has done a good enough job. You don't see static panels. You see, like exactly like you just said, you see a movement, a transition of movement between the panels and itself, and it feels in your mind that everything is in motion one way or another. And, and obviously, yes, you still have like splash pages and, and double page spreads where things are relatively static, and it's, it forces you to slow down to take in and absorb all this information on a single page or a double page. But but ultimately you're not consciously thinking that you're reading individual static images and it's the most natural thing in the world as, as us as an audience but also us as writers especially writers like yourself when you come from the screen um, medium to want to write in motion so when you're breaking things down in comic books and graphic novels it's it's always meaning to it's the it's the trying the analysis of trying to find the most a meaningful moment in that motion to capture in a panel and then do the same thing in the following panel, but also making sure that effectively it transitions nicely from that previous panel. So you're effectively doing a, a high wire act where you're throwing the audience, the reader in the air to be caught by another panel and hoping that they don't fall between the gutters oh. <laughs> essentially in that process of it. And it is a, it is a, a, it is a learning experience. It's something that I've had to learn. It's obviously something that you just said you've had to learn. And when you're in comic books and, and trying to do, to kind of work your way through that, it's always trying to understand exactly what are the most effective ways of, of communicating that motion. Um, which ironically for me was, you know, it's been the other way around because when I started writing um, for the screen for video games, it became a thing where I was having to relearn elements of, of like the first bits of writing that I did, where you're having to introduce, having to reintroduce motion uh, rather than thinking of static um, captured images by comparison. And, and it had to, I had to transition my brain to kind of learn and relearn how it was to write things in continuous motion mm-hmm. rather than in, in small doses by comparison. So it is a really, really weird thing in a weird way to think about it. But, uh, but it is a very, that's one of the unique wonders of, of comic books in itself, what partially makes it such a great medium to work within. Absolutely. And, and when um, bringing on board um, a project or an idea that was kind of not so much alien, because I remember you... Did we ever talk about Bioshock and and the steampunk elements of that? Yeah. And, you know, which which was one mm-hmm. of the things. So you, it was an early. I mean, it wasn't so much you know me introducing you to something that you'd never experienced. You had experienced part of it, mm-hmm. but introducing that 
otherworldly sort of aspect of the story. Um, presenting that in, I guess, one of the most, you know, illustrated ways um, in, you know, written to, to, for film. And then trying to port that over into into graphic novel or comic, you know, was, was a thing. But I just wonder, you know, how did you find, what were your first impressions of, of what I sold you? It was... Um... It was something which felt like I think if you hadn't have introduced me in in the way that you did in terms of like the the Alice in Wonderland Sherlock Holmes Blade Runner um, kind of analogies and pulling for those elements I think I probably would have been a little bit more lost um, because it is such a a broad concept in itself within a medium uh, sorry within a genre that is um, it doesn't have very much um, mainstream exposure you know we've seen things like uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Sherlock Holmes yep. movies and, and other stuff which kind of borrow steampunk aesthetic and, and parts of that of that genre as well. But um, for for whatever reasons and reasons that you've already, you know, tapped into in your earlier episodes as well, um, it's never really caught the full imagination of the mainstream in the way that, you know, you would hope it would ultimately. Um, and so all these kind of like strange um, and slightly otherworldly elements were, for, were also things that I kind of glommed onto because I, I like weird stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? That have, I, I know, right? <laughs> this is no surprise to you, no surprise to anyone that knows me. Um, but if you don't know me, it's like, this, this, is, this is me. I love weird shit. It's like, that's, that's what I love for. I live for. Um, and so when you started introducing those elements to me, and, and some of this is actually stuff which, you know, I'm not going to be able to talk about it because it, it dovetails into future parts of the story, which obviously kind of like go back to your very first original um, film script, again, that you talked about in the previous episode, um, which we were building up to. And when I started reading some of those elements, I thought, okay, this is stuff that I understand. This is stuff that I feel I can loan my voice to and, and kind of really attach myself to in a way which I can hopefully help um, enhance and hopefully bring... Um, another level of perspective too at the same time because steampunk in itself like you said steampunk in itself wasn't entirely alien to me because i've played bioshock games and i kind of like the other elements out there that i kind of been part of but i think it was always for me um cyberpunk i think i mentioned this to you when we when we first started talking yeah. as well i think cyberpunk was always my my main kind of go-to in, in kind of like the subgenres. Yeah. and steampunk was something that was um I, I was a bit less knowledgeable on as a by comparison so it was really trying to learn like elements and genre conventions of steampunk, but also trying to take those otherworldly elements that you wanted to bring in and kind of go, oh, okay, those parts are really familiar to me. I can, I can really work with those parts and help me to understand and dovetail into, into the steampunk parts as well yeah. and create something which, from my perspective, at that particular time, you know, back in the 2010, 2011s, um, I hadn't really seen before in, you know, comic books, in, in definitely not in film or TV, um, in most mediums, realistically speaking. Yeah, yeah. Actually, referencing what you've just mentioned, even up till today, I I don't think we actually have seen the real, proper interpretation or dramatization of what the steampunk genre in itself is. And I no. I, I I can remember many a time uh, telling friends and saying, "Well, no one, no one company or or brand." can step up and say their own steampunk. And that is solely because 
Um, so there are so many elements to it that are all individual, as in people who create their own idea of what steampunk is, you know. And the one way of of owning it, I guess, the only way of owning it, is if you went into um, the 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 plumbing trade, because so many of these <coughs> these these creators, and I call them inventors, um, they put together these amazing contraptions that. Most are based on copper piping, and if you want to own steampunk, if you buy if you buy out the whole sort of plum merchant plumber merchant sort of um, sort of I'd say franchise, um, then you can have a, probably have a certain say um, or monopoly on how how the genre and the clothing and the aesthetic develops. Apart from that, you know, even down to the music, it is all mm-hmm. organic, and it and no film has ever come close to to explaining that. And one of the things that I loved about clockwork in itself is we try to explain or to give a reason behind all or many of the respective movements and the elements of the aesthetics of of the the genre. Be it yeah. why are people wearing masks? Why are people dressing like this? Why is the world like that? But on the flip side of that, in itself, is we have not, in all the episodes and all the live events we've done, never introduced a firearm or or any plasma or nuclear sort of device. We've kept it very very close to how the world would have been if um, we had taken that left turn. <laughs> yeah yeah which I, I i think is interesting in itself um really i think that's something which is relatively unique within that sphere and um i know that was something that you were very kind of like it was one of the the tenants that you wanted to the clock watch to to abide by over the over the kind of like very early stages and and the introduction as well, like I say, the introduction of why people are like dismantling their, their grandfather clocks and, yep. and wearing masks and everything like that, which I thought was actually a really smart element because I think it's very easy to take the genre of steampunk for granted that the audience is going to automatically buy into the aesthetic and buy into the reasons why um, they may be dressed in a certain way and not question it. Um, and I think as an like an, as any audience coming new into into steampunk they may not they may just bounce off that they may just see it and go okay this is just too weird for me and just kind of step away from it and i think being able to introduce that in a way and have like the genesis of these things being put into uh, into the actual story itself allows people a um, a tether and a grounding that they can attach themselves to to understand the genre um and you know it's not like we're, we're kind of like saying oh this is the abcs of steampunk and, and exactly like you said earlier on in terms of saying we're not saying that this is how steampunk should be done or you know this is the definitive way of, of how steampunk should be done um but more so a kind of like this is our version of what we think steampunk should be and this is also our way of introducing people to steampunk um which i think is really really useful and and so valuable to to any genre, especially a subgenre which for a lot of people is is relatively new to. Yeah. Um, you know, you can get away with that with science fiction as a broad thing or fantasy or horror. 
Um, because many people are, are introduced to those genres from a very, very early age. Mm-hmm. But steampunk in itself, um, especially if you like, you know, from from our generation, yeah. <laughs> um, like steampunk is relatively young in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so having those elements and introducing people in a way, I think, is a, is a great way of just kind of putting your arm around the audience and kind of like saying, hey, you know, we understand this may be a little bit crazy, but <laughs> stick with us. We'll, we'll, we'll introduce you to those elements and, you know, you'll be along with the ride for us after that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we went, we went from, you know, sitting down, writing, concepting, coming up with these ideas and, and more or less expanding the narrative and, you know, you guiding, guiding the whole process in, in, in terms of how it was structured. But that was just one part of it. The other element, which has more or less dictated um, how the audience and readers have reacted to, to our story, is the illustration. And mm. you went, I guess, you went out or you knew... No, you'd worked with her before. You, brought, you, you introduced um, Jenny Gilblad to, to the mix. Yeah, yeah, because I'd worked with her on um, a project called Bayou Arcana, uh, which was uh, created by a writer called Jimmy Pearson. And he wanted to create a universe which is set around um, the, the, the bayou, the swamps, um, talking about um, effectively runaway escaped slaves. And um, he brought me on, and I think I met um, Jen around that same period of time. And, um, and Jen and I ended up working together on one of these stories for Bayou Arcana. Um, which was which was wonderful. Um, you know, it was a great experience. I absolutely loved working on that story. And I remember when you said, "Hey, like for these first couple of graphic novels, um, you know, you wanted a, a hand painted kind of style to really lend this unique visual aesthetic to to what we were working on." And uh, because I was working with Jen at the time, anyway, I remember kind of like saying, "Well." Actually, <laughs> I know I know someone who is not only. Oh, okay, sorry. I've I've kind of jumped a story, a bit of a story here. I started working with Jen on a graphic novel for was what was then a published quoted some of the publication. Was this magic? And Jen and I were. No, it wasn't. It was uh, the one that went away. It was, it was butterflies and moths. Yeah, butterflies and moths. Yeah. Yeah, so we were we were partnered together to work on a graphic novel for Insomniac Publications, which was then kind of like going to be the Image Comics of the UK, essentially. Was, was that the first and, way um, you met her? Was that how you came met met Jenny in the first place? That that was the very first time that Jen and I yeah met because we were because um, um, so we were partnered together to work on this graphic novel. I had written a, basically a, a pitch for this graphic novel. It was kind of like a horror fantasy, urban fantasy graphic novel, and. Um, like uh, we initially had one artist that I was working with and I was like, I'm not entirely sure this artist fits the style that I want for the story. And so they, um, they kind of threw another artist at me, which was Jen. And I, I saw Jen's, Jen did like a little bit of artwork, um, kind of mock-ups. And I was like, I just fell in love immediately with her artwork. And I said, this is perfect. And so she, we were working together. We managed to get the whole first chapter kind of done. And then in some of that uh, publications fell apart, basically. There's a long sort of story that's online about it. Um, but we wanted to work together ever since after that point. So we were partnered together for the Bayou Arcana thing as well, because I thought, you know, Jen would be amazing artist to work with. So I'd really known Jen for at least a couple of years, I think, at that point. Um, and so, yeah, that was when, like you said, like, you know, you wanted someone like Jen's style. And I thought Jen is perfect. You know, I've worked with her before. Um, her style just would, would suit this entire story down to the ground. Um, 
and so yeah it was just kind of like that's when kind of Jen came into the fold and was just like I remember her coming like wow this is really this is crazy exciting stuff um and I was like yeah right so <laughs> and then I think you, you both started talking and like you know you gave it a steal on everything um and that's when it kind of like the, the three of us started kind of like combining like Voltron <laughs> to create this uh <laughs> this first graphic novel which ended up being the arrival yeah for yeah. it um yeah yeah, that was. I mean, that was. That, those were heady days because uh, there was a lot of. You know, I guess call it a leap of faith on on all parts. Because not only did we work out how this the story was going to come together, what what how it was going to look, how it's going to be packaged, what the the title of the book was, and all all the rest of this stuff, we also had relationships that needed to be kind of worked out, while at the same time pondering how the hell are we going to pay for this thing. Yes. Yes. I remember you kind of like uh saying kind of saying like here's my here's my plan. I was like, Whoa, okay, this is uh this is new. <laughs> this is this is big. Uh, this is very big, but it's also terrifying. Um and I remember you also saying like, you know, it's okay, I'll you know, I'll I'll handle it, it'll be it'll be, it'll be okay, if you're all all alright. <laughs> Which is something <laughs> I seem to say quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we were we were one of the first to to go with crowdfunding um, a graphic novel uh, in that mm. the way that we did, and I I can remember you know the trials and tribulations of trying to to get this thing off the ground and uh, and to make it work, and this was off the back of the previous project I did, which was Breathe, which was a I think almost like a fifty k sort of project that was bankrolled. Um, from my um, mortgage, which I took a whole bunch of money out of the mortgage, and I was wow. I, I was more or less told, "Do not take any more money out of this pot." So, so we kind of worked out that okay, we're going to crowdfund, and at that point, crowdfunding was in its formative-ish sort of years, formative mm. stage over here. Never quite kind of it wasn't as big as as it currently is, and I can remember losing a colossal amount of money um with postage because at that point they hadn't added this the, the the technology hadn't kind of factored in postage so you we put we put in this whole thing uh people gave us the money and then when when it was time to start sending all the rewards out and stuff i kind of realized that we were more or less broke but but it was a really heady time so i can remember yeah i remember sort of thinking there were times when I would go to bed um, and think, okay, all of my friends out in the US and my friends in Asia uh, and Australia have promised they're going to throw some money in. And then I'd wake up at about four or five in the morning because I'd be you know, tossing and turning in bed and I'll go online and I'd have a look and nothing would have changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I remember how stressed you were at the time with that whole thing because like you said, crowdfunding was in its relative infancy at that time and there was still a lot of nervousness about like the reliability of crowdfunding. There's a lot of excitement around it, but there's also a lot of kind of like, well, this is relatively new. We're not sure how it works or the procedure or anything that, that goes with it. And there was no real true standardization no. around it. So, you know, the audience was new to it. We were new to it. It was just like a bit of a wild west uh, kind of thing. And I remember you saying like, oh, well, we've got lots of people that are willing to to put their money forward, but 
as 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 we all know, um, you know, not just us, but you know, everyone else listening, it's one thing to to say that you're going to put money down on something. It's another thing altogether to actually put that money down Absolutely. on something. <laughs> and with this being such a new venture, you know, Clockwork Watch was such a relatively new thing on the scene and something relatively kind of untapped, um, you know, especially in the genre itself. Um, you could sense that that kind of seesaw of excitement, but also anxiety. It's like people were really excited about being part of it. And it like, you could see the enthusiasm of like the energy that, you know, they want to support it, they want to get in there. And then like, you go, okay, so here's the money that you need to contribute. And this is what's going to happen. And this is when you'll get your, your product, which would be a graphic novel and, and, you know, a ticket to an event and blah, blah, blah. And then people go, oh, okay. Um, right, okay, I'll, I'll get to it in another week, you know, when I've got yeah. paid and everything. And then you could, you could see the, the gears kind of turning over yeah. slowly bit yeah. by bit yeah so yeah it was it was a wild time i think we've done two no we've done three crowd funds with clockwork today i think mm. three crowd funds out of 10 books 11 books so yeah not, we've yeah. not done too badly and and at that point i believe there were quite a few people and no names or anything mentioned but even some that i know that you may not know people who <laughs> set out with all the amazing intentions uh, of of producing a whole series of stories, a whole series of books that didn't get past the first or the second, and taking mm -hmm. into account, we only said we were going to do three. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think I still find it wild in my head that you know we've we've done so much over that period of time and and given that that was the initial the initial thing was like we we're going to do two or three books and and this that was going to be it and you know we're building into into something big and then that'll be clockwork watch it'll be that'll be done it'll be done um <laughs> <laughs> and then like i look up at like i've got my um my shelf on, on my bookshelf is like a whole shelf is dedicated to stuff that I have either been part of or, or published or written myself, and like the whole Clockwork Watch section in there with all the books that we've we've done together, and it's like my God, this is this is wild and this is crazy, and I think it really speaks to what you said earlier on, um, you know, today, where you said like there are so many different ways for people to get into Clockwork Watch. Um, whether it's the, the live events, whether it's the, the theatre, whether it's graphic novels, whether it's the radio, whether it's, you know, anything, mm. all these elements. And one of the things that comic books has as a difficulty, and it's been a real buzz, buzz topic um, as early, like even this month, really, and it's been a continual buzz topic for a long time, is, is accessibility. Yeah. People talking about it's very difficult to get into into comic books if you've never really got into them properly before. You know, I want to start on Spider-Man, but there's literally like hundreds and hundreds of issues where do i start and the people go start at issue one but it's like you can't start at issue one because issue one is like you know you're going back to amazing fantasy essentially <laughs> and the stan lee Ditko era and how so much okay, is, how so, much is that <laughs> oh exactly exactly right so and then you kind of like you start going okay so start at this particular era and it's like well this particular era has got links to other eras and so on and so forth and it becomes a massive big mess of things and manga doesn't have that issue by comparison because people, like the, the volumes are very clearly marked. And it's an te absolute testament to, you know, your the idea that you wanted for Clockwork Watch and the stuff that we've done in itself, um, that Clockwork Watch is still relatively accessible to people yeah. who haven't done, like, done Steampunk before, don't know Clockwork Watches or anything because we've segmented each part and brought people in. And like you said, 
it's like if people just want to engage with the the participatory live experience stuff that's perfectly fine you can do that and then leave the rest if you want to if you want to engage with just graphic novel side then you know we've got clearly labeled volumes that you can jump into at various points if you want to if you want to engage with the whole shebang you know you want to go onto the you know the actual kind of like online uh, newspaper and participate with that or what have you everything is there for you and you can dip in and dip out take what you want leave what you want and still understand what the universe is about and that is such a massive massive thing in this crazy world of transmedia in this crazy world where you know star wars and marvel are doing everything they can to, to mm. dip into every single medium they possibly can yep. and still confusing people absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. with their story absolutely uh, you mentioned a couple of things that are really really interesting uh, uh apart from sergio uh, who, who who you work with on on a vast number of things uh <laughs> Am I? I mean, have we? Have you produced more or edited more work with me than any other person, or is it? Or is Sergio still in the lead? Um, well, Sergio, I've edited two of his stories in Magic and Myths. Um, I'm usually the writer, uh, but Sergio occasionally kind of like writes some of the stories as well within that universe, and we kind of like, we trying to keep it all self-contained. Um, so in, in reality, I've only edited effectively two of the stories that he's written um, there. Um, for Clockwork Watch, I, you know, obviously we we wrote three books, absolutely, um, and then I've edited the rest of them. So I, yeah, so definitely this is the the most I have edited in that respect in terms of uh, fiction mm. to date, yeah. really. Because um, yeah. even though when I edit children's books, butterfly books, it's like you know I've edited like I think I think we're on the eighth or ninth book now. Um, so yeah, Clockwork Watch is definitely being kind of like is, is up there in terms of the sheer amount of stuff that I've, I've looked at and edited over that period of time. And more or less going back a little bit, because you, you I need to unpack some other stuff that you mentioned. Uh, first, uh, the crowdfund. It wasn't just a crowdfund. Mm-hmm. We won an award. We did. We did. And I, even then, that I mean, now I'm still kind of like, that that whole part of it just just flew by <laughs> it was like it shot by it's like i remember you saying we've won an award um and it's like it was was it the indiegogo award yeah, for the best yeah. graphic novel yeah um and even now i'm like i you know i <laughs> i put it down like you put it down whenever i'm writing bios or anything like that um and i also put down like chocolate i mean chocolate watches won multiple awards over that over the space of time um but i think that was the very first award that chocolate watch had won yeah yeah. essentially yeah. um and that was just like every, so much was happening back then we got like a feature in bizarre magazine uh-huh. um like a, a huge double page spread feature in yep. bizarre magazine we won this award at indiegogo and it's just like oh my god what is happening yeah. and there's barely any time to settle on it or, or think about it or dwell on it it was just like on to the next thing on to the next absolutely. thing it's like this thing's happening this thing's like, absolutely oh, what's this it, it 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 was it was heady, and one of the things that we did because you know, as you mentioned, the whole idea wasn't was you know that this shouldn't just be a book you pick up, um, mm-hmm. it needed to be more, and the whole idea of transmedia, immersive media, immersive storytelling was very very fixed on my mind. So to launch the first book, as in Jenny had done all the illustrations. We had crowdfunded, we got some money in. This was before the award was announced and we needed to launch this whole thing, but we had no budget to launch anything. So we decided to host 
our very first immersive event. And I guess mm. that was the first of its kind that that you experienced. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know what to expect either. Um, I remember you kind of like saying, like, this is going to be our launch event. And I've been to, for me, um, I've never been to a, a full launch event for a for a live event that was that was kind of effectively fictionalized and, and based around fiction. Mm, mm. So I didn't really know what to expect at all when going to this. And um, I remember kind of like going there and going, oh, okay, so I, I, this is just mind blowing. Cause like, you know, we had all the, the actors that were there, the, the actual members of the audience and the, the public, all the, the vendors and the stalls. And, and the, the venue. Music playing. And, and- yeah, at London Bridge. Um, we were in a tunnel. Yeah. We were in a tunnel, a, dis- a tunnel that hadn't been used um, for, for, for ages. I mean, we're talking about very, very, very long time. We're not, we're not even talking about in, you know, in the nearest 50 years. This is a tunnel that was just disused underneath London Bridge, which was very close to the origins of the, the London Necro um, railway system, which took... Um, all the bodies that were that were um, the dead bodies that the people who died from the plague. There was a special railway line that took them out of London, and I made sure that we found a place that was very very close to that, because illness and disease and health was a central part. I've always felt was a central part of steampunk, in the sense that why are people wearing masks? It's because the, the air quality is just absolutely, I mean, it, it's there to kill you, basically. So I thought, yeah. let's let's look at the plague period. Let's look at the vagrancy. Let's look at the, the, the really squalor and the slums of that particular period. And let's bring it all together. And a friend of mine, James Batterson, happened to manage this tunnel i don't know how the hell he got it but it was a tunnel that had never been opened so we created a front facade for for the tunnel um you had a door that you went into we decorated the whole thing we had one or two stages we had an authentic victorian looking indoor market in fact the caterers who came to do the food created food that was based on the victorian age we had kedgeri kedgeri that was in a very old made with a very old recipe um, instead of you going and getting your plastic cup for a cup of tea, we had proper china, porcelain and stuff. So we, we created this whole thing. <laughs> and we just put it there with, a fi- with fingers crossed that people would attend. Yeah, and there were so many people <laughs> that did attend. It was just it was just this absolute mass of people all there. Um yeah, I have such fond memories of the, of that whole experience because there were there were such a different ways of experiencing the the event itself and and watching people interact with each other in in such a way and then obviously Professor Elemental coming yeah. on and doing his set and everyone just coming absolutely bananas over the whole thing. Yeah, did, um, did you then, re- like so go 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 go. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, and then just at the end, we're just kind of like you know dishing people, the books out to people. It's like <laughs> here's your book, here's your book, and it's just like. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm loving it. Because <laughs> that, that was the start of the, I guess that was the start of the story. And then we, we kind of sprung on from there. And I remember two things, two things that really stood out at that gig. The first was um, I'd put a, quite a lot of money 
into creating these props. And within the clockwork watch world, we have clockwork automatons that were being just created at that stage, which more or less was a was a precursor to what was in the book. Now, we had these props that were meant to be mechanical parts and a mechanical heart and all these things that were being introduced to the public. But halfway through the gig, a bunch of pranksters stole one of the props, the one of the central props, and held it to ransom. You know, and they just basically they, they wanted they, they needed they demanded more information on how how this new technology was going to affect their lives. And then the flip side of that, and the other side of that, uh, I can remember one of my colleagues running up to me and saying, people have started leaving. And this was within about two hours. And this gig went on for quite a while. Uh, it went on for the best part of seven to eight hours. And yeah. I can remember um, this friend coming up and saying, people started leaving. I thought, Christ almighty. Because it was on a Sunday, I think it was a Sunday afternoon or something like that. I think so, yeah. yeah. So... This guy disappears, and then he returns about an hour and a half later, stands in the middle of the room, raises his voice, everyone stops, stares at him, and he starts handing out these leaflets. And he says, you know what? This new technology is going to take all of our jobs, and what we need is a trade union. So I am starting a trade union right here, right now. (laughs) Which, Which... Guys were coming up to say, God, dude, someone's about to steal your show. Someone's about Because at that point, within uh, sort of alternate reality games, all it really would take is for someone to say, here's a shiny thing over here. And then that just distracts everyone from the central story. And, you know, the person goes off with all of your audience and, and all, all, everything that you've created. Anyway, within yeah. this story, I thought, yeah, that is fine. If he wants to create... Uh, you know, a trade union within my narrative. I am totally, utterly happy with that because it's central to the, the whole idea of a disjointed narrative where each person is is the guardian, is the host, is the editor, is the writer of their own story that aligns with what I've created. That is what I'm trying to do. And it's very hard mm-hmm. to monetize that, I guess, which is part of the reason why I guess Clockwork is still self-funded. But that was what yeah. I loved about it. And And then... Elemental came up on stage. And did you get to the bar around the back where we had a guy with the I, accordion? <laughs> I don't even think I got to that point. Oh <laughs> that's, that's the strangest thing. It's like, I think with these events, um, there is so much happening. There's so much going on that it's, it's very easy to, to get enraptured by one element and miss everything else that's going on around you in well, the process of it. But you're not meant to, that's the thing. You're not meant to see everything. Um, you're meant to connect with people possibly after the event or even within the event where they tell you about what they've experienced that has happened and then gone. You know, it's a bit like life. You can never know everything. And that was more or less, I guess that's more or less what we've been trying to do. And we've done several events, you know, several amazing sort of events. Some we'll talk about um, a, little bit, a little bit later on. But this, this was an intro, and no doubt we'll be talking about this quite a, quite a lot, Corey, over time. But, <laughs> but, but, but you know, so we, we had, we had the, the launch event, we had the crowdfund, the award came in, uh, we had the books, and we had a platform. And I guess mm-hmm. the world was our oyster. And then it became, what are we going to do next? Yes. And the next yeah. was Breakaway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's always scary when, when that question is asked because you kind of like, you think to yourself, well, 
so many great things have come from this. Now there's an expectation that comes with it as well. So Breakaway was, um, Breakaway is one of those things where I think ordinarily it becomes the tricky second album. The the one thing that like people are they're coming off the back of Arrival, they're going, oh my God, I absolutely love this. But I think what helped was that you already had the screenplay of Breakaway written. And so it gave me something of like a, of a, of a platform um, and a foundation to kind of go, okay, so this is already the guiding, the North Star that we're going to use when putting this together. Um, and now that we've got a tangible product in, in the arrival that we can use, um, hopefully Breakaway will allow us to kind of pull it together. And I think, I think it was during that period of time as well, where we were talking and kind of saying like, there's lots of elements here. And there's also elements that you wanted to introduce into the story that would become countenance yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. After which there was a lot more new material that I was putting together to, to almost retrofit into your original screenplay. Yeah. Um, to kind of bring in. So I was creating characters like Bassant and, and other yeah. elements that came together yeah. that was yeah. moving into all this stuff that you wanted to do. Absolutely. And to explain some of the elements of, of Clockwork, the, fir- the it's basically broken into several different sections. The first three sections um, are books one, two, and three, books four, five, and six, and books seven and eight. One, two, and three are the story told from the perspective of Janav and his family who come from Calcutta. Uh, his dad's Chan, the the kinetic engineer, and and he 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 puts the the cell, the power cell, into a generation of clockwork automatons, where one of them gains its sentience and kind of believes that its next step is to be accepted as a human being. The second book, or the second, I guess, um, chapter, which is books four, five, and six, are told from the perspective of um, Irvin, the automaton who gains his sentience, and he looks at the world from his own unique sort of perspective, from his own unique look. And um, and it, I'm not going to give too much away with regards to, to, to his journey, but, um, yeah, he, he's, 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 there's a whole load of trial and tribulations and, and turmoil. Mm. And then the third section, which is books um, seven and eight, Eight are from the perspective of a character called the alchemist, and the alchemist isn't so much a character in itself; it's a hereditary sort of um, title that mm-hmm. starts off with the 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 accumulation of knowledge, and that knowledge comes from the f- original days of witchcraft to as as witchcraft more or less morphs into alchemy and clockwork watch is set at a time when alchemy is gradually being turned into science so the alchemist is is a repository of ancient knowledge over time and every single generation has an alchemist who is brought up taught all the old ways and and more or less asked to embrace and understand the new ways of doing things so you have those three perspectives one from the the alchemist, one from the automaton, one from the family from India, and across all of those, people who scratch below the surface kind of realize that we are looking at the civil rights movement, the abolition of the slave trade, the suffragette movement, and and civil liberties. And when you go beyond just reading the comics and coming to the events, you actually begin to understand how we are exploring some of these pasts 
uh, and more or less shedding a certain amount of light on how we as human beings have reacted to some of these things and asking whether there are better ways in which we could have addressed these matters. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's a very that's a fantastically succinct way of, of explaining like over a decade's worth of uh, of story uh, across just one part of the the medium in itself. So yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great way of, that's a great uh, way of... of summing it all up, really. Yeah, and we've we've done that, and you know, some people water off the duck's back, read the story, enjoy it. Some people. You know, yeah, really interesting. I kind of like this tone, and other people mm. have delved straight in. I I remember there's a lady who keeps who who's, who comes to conventions and buys a book on the first day, disappears, and then comes back the second day, sits down and spends about forty minutes pulling it apart <laughs> and trying to. You know, yeah. she's really got into it. And Clockwork Watch has been the basis of several theses, masters and PhD theses, looking at the period that we 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 focus on. Mm. And you know the the other thing that I really wanted to go because I, I know we're you're, you're running out we're running out gradually running out of time and and but uh, one of the first things I can remember asking you um, was mm. okay with this story we're going to go far I said we're going to go far and I asked yeah. I said uh, which conventions do you want to do <laughs> yes <laughs> yes and it was just like well. You know, there's all these conventions around the UK, but the, the big one, the one that everybody talks about is always going to be San Diego Comic Con. And you were like, okay, so we're doing that. And I was like, uh, well, I don't think it's going to be that easy. You know, there's a, there's a waiting list and there's people always fighting to kind of be able to try and to get onto that. And it's, it's really difficult and blah, 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 um, et cetera, how, et cetera. How many years have we been doing Comic Con? We're hitting our 10th year this year, <laughs> which is just madness absolute <laughs> madness i don't understand it's uh oh man i am I'm, i mean i'm so grateful i am super super grateful and so happy that it's our 10th year this year because i think even now people like when we say we're going to comic con they go oh you know the mcm and we're like no 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 it's like san diego comic con <laughs> because Comic Con now has become this amorphous term for, yeah. for any comic convention, and and this was not the case, you know, ten years ago, not even the case of like eight years ago. Mm. Um, you know, comic conventions now in the UK are a lot bigger than they, they used to be. Yep. Um, so having the the privilege to be accepted on first blush, first <laughs> application to go. I remember, I, it's just yeah, just that first letter getting coming back because it was at that point it was snail mail when they would send you back. And I think it came to um, my my old family address back yep. in Birmingham. Yeah. And we were obviously, I was still living in London at the time. And uh, and they were like, and my mum's like, there's a letter here. It's got the Comic-Con logo. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so just opening up and it's like, you know, we're very happy to, to have you go to the Comic-Con to accept you for a small press table. And yeah, just absolute bedlam. Hey, really, man. To you be know part what? of that. Yeah, we are. I've been doing a lot of digging on this. We are the only two black indie self-published Brits who have done Comic-Con on 10 consecutive years. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I, I think we were we were talking about this before, like last year or the year before. It was like, we were thinking, we suspect that may be the case, but we weren't 100% sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to have that, like, as, as that's it, that's, 
that's what we are <laughs> is madness. Is that, nice. that is wild. It is um, I mean, that's, we, we have gone, to be fair, we've gone a bit of a reputation there <laughs> over the 10 years. Um, people know who we are. People expect us to be there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people come and visit us all the time and, and come back to see what we've got. Um, and uh, there is a certain amount of uh, uniqueness that we have in, in terms of being the, the Black Brits that come over to the small press section every single year and, and talk our, our wild stuff <laughs> with all the books that we've got. Now that uh, can't even fit on a single table. I know. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's been such a journey, and you know, I, I am like I said, I'm super grateful, super appreciative, so happy that we could do this sort of thing and, and able to do this sort of thing and continue to do this sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, every single time. Absolutely. Well, what we're going to do is um, we're going to round this, but. Corey is going to hopefully be a regular on this podcast and we'll be able to pull in more more people and, and more or less open the world uh, behind the scenes so that you actually see how a lot of this is taking place. There's big conversations about how the story's developed, huge conversations about our first trip to, to America. And, and, <laughs> and, oh, and, oh, that and, is a story. <laughs> You know, <laughs> conventions in the UK. Some of our friends and follow people. You know, people who, who you know who have done amazingly. You know, um, amazingly well over time. People like Barry and you know and David and mm. and and all of the people that we, the family, the more or less that we've created o- over time. Also, um, getting Jenny on to actually talk about how she took took those words and and helped to create the look and the feel of the story mm. but also yeah you know jenny's not the only illustrator we have we've got two or three other illustrators that we've worked with on clockwork which is why it's kind of unique in the sense that you've got different styles for different parts of the story and we'll be exploring yeah. a little bit of that but also some of the down bits some of the trials and tribulations that we've had to had to had to deal with and Corey, yeah. thank you so much to, for 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 taking the time to do this, and it's something I've been looking forward to. And as I say, Clockwork Chronicles. After ten years, I kind of thought, okay, ten, eleven years rather. Let's just talk about what we've done because it is a big achievement. We've done well. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, it's something I'm, you know, one of the things I'm very, very proud of of being part of, and that we've done. Um, so it, it deserves it does deserve a bit of a bit of pomp and celebration. I think after all these years, absolutely, <laughs> definitely, yeah. And we're going to hoist that flag up. And and uh, I mean, Comic Con, Comic Con this year. I'm going to hopefully mm. try to recreate our very first year out there by by um, making sure that we go to that that um, that place outside outside pardon me, outside Los Angeles and is it outside LA where. Uh, I can remember we we sat in in oh, I've got an airstream. We sat in the trailer <laughs> and we could hear this megaphone from a distance <laughs> where they were going through all the vehicles that are coming in from Mexico. And I can remember sitting there one night and saying, "Corey, do you want to dance?" Is <laughs> 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 it you crazy? Yeah, they'll open the door. I'll see two black guys in in in, in, a, in a caravan. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <even> just dancing. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. I honestly, at some point, I thought we're gonna get arrested out here. We we're gonna we're gonna have to call our significant others and say, "Hey, honey, we're in the Californian jail." 
Don't worry. Well, we, I mean, what about what about the guys who who didn't see us at the campground and automatically assumed that we've been, we've been kidnapped in Mexico? I mean, yeah, that that that's just it all, really. It's just the, the early stages of our San Diego adventures, where a policeman, an actual policeman who was camping next to us, thought that we'd probably been taken away, been bundled into a car and taken away to Mexico because he didn't see us for a period of time. That just says it all in terms of, that encapsulates all of our adventure for the first few years at San Diego, just how wild and crazy it was back then. Yeah, we, we will definitely have to get into the, the weeds of that one because, oh, I don't think people would, would truly believe what we're, what we're saying. <laughs> you, remember, you remember the guys? They were giving us these drinks. You know, this is before we even knew they were policemen. They were giving us these drinks. And they said, yeah, they're mildly low alcohol. And we're drinking, we're drinking. And then one says he's about to get, he's getting in the car and he's driving off. And I said, uh, dude, this, this thing's got some alcohol. He said, it's okay. Here's my badge. I'm a cop anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what can you say? What can you say? These are the stuff that, is this the stuff that just happens to us? It's just, you know, we're just, we're just there along for the ride. Whoever's there pulling our strings like Geppetto, oh. guiding us along the little path that we're on. Just, yeah, we're just, we're just there trying to document it all. Absolutely. Corey, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. We we're definitely reconnecting over and over. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. And we've got, um, we've got a, a new, a new, I mean, throwing forward, we've got a new artist that we're working with on mm-hmm. on yes. Sins Three, and uh, yes. we'll be talking to her as well. And uh, Shannon is amazing; she lives up north. But no, I'm not introduced. I'm going to muddy the water somewhat because we're still in the early <laughs> the early years of of clockwork. We'll be talking, hopefully, talking to uh, to Jenny, and I'll be. Yeah. Um, keeping you updated but thank you Corey and thanks for listening to the clockwork to the clockwork watch chronicles please subscribe to our podcast on apple itunes or wherever you get your podcasts my name's yomi ayeni and uh, i shall talk to you in episode four thank you and goodbye <laughs>